It's good to be in the house of the Lord to declare the reality that our God is alive. Here's going to be a shocker for you today. I'm going to preach a message about Easter. That's what I decided to do. It's a good day to do that. And so if you've got your Bibles, take them and turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. We've had a great week here at First Baptist. We hosted the uh, Gillisville Community uh, Holy Week services here. And I've had just an awesome time uh, hosting that with everyone. And different church each day had that. And it was a blessing to be together. But I have looked forward all week to this day. To be with God's people. It's good to see some guests we have in our midst. Some family members. Some people that are back that haven't been here in a little bit. It's good to see you. We're glad to have you in a part of our service today. But this time of year, around holidays, I always get a little introspective. Sometimes I get a little nostalgic. Think about holidays past or watching my kids. And as my kids are growing up now, um, we have our last in elementary school for just a little over a year more as they're moving up. Look back in nostalgia on what used to be. Think about what can be and what's coming, but I'll also get a little introspective just about my own life and where I am and What's ahead? And sometimes I think about things that I wish I was better at that I'm not. Does anybody here have one of those things that you wish you could do in life and you just can't? Anybody got one of those? Sometimes it's because you just can't. Like you've tried and you just can't. There are limitations on you. I always wanted to play music. I wanted to shred on the guitar. Long hair flowing, head bobbing, foot up on an amp. That's what I wanted to do. I don't have the hair for it, nor can I play an instrument. And I've tried. I, I got a guitar uh, when I was in high school and even in, in college. You know, in college it's really cool to have like an acoustic guitar in the dorm and picked up my friends and had this thing I was trying to learn. I tried everything to be some kind of musical I bought one of those Cracker Barrel harmonicas one time, and that <laughs> did not go well at all. I just can't. I'm just not able. All right? I've always wanted to dunk a basketball. I have a son that can now do that. And I can't. And I never will. I, I think that ship has sailed. Can I get an in that? All right? It's, it's sailed. I know that. It was never possible to begin with, but it is gone. I just can't. Then there's some stuff like I thought, man, I'd like to do that. I just don't have the time or the money or the equipment to do it. I'd love to be a woodworker. I know you look at me and you think, well, that's a woodworker right there. (laughs) Man, I see things people create, chairs and tables. I've got a nephew that is master, like did a YouTube video about taking pallets and turning into a table. And people are like commenting. And I was like, that is so cool. I wish I could do that. I don't have the time to learn. I don't have the money to invest in the equipment needed to learn. And I don't want to start out at like, look, I made a pretend chair that's a couple of inches high. Like, I just don't have that capability. And then there are things in life that I wish I was better at, but I'm not because I don't like them. Like running. I really wish I was good at running, but I'm not. I mean, I know the health benefits. I know all that is there. 
And here's the reason I'm not. is because every time I try it, I hate my life. <laughs> Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? My least favorite day of school every year when I was growing up, some of you may have heard this before, was the presidential fitness. Do you all remember that? I mean, remember presidential They don't do that anymore, I don't think. And my worst day, I didn't mind the sit-ups. I mean, I never could do a pull-up, but I didn't mind the sit-ups. Didn't mind the push-ups. When it was 600-yard dash day, I wanted to be sick every year. That's just where I am. Now, we've got some runners here, right? How many runners? Let me see your hand. You're a runner? Yeah, we got some cross-country runners. we got some people running marathons. She's not raising her hand up there, running the uh, pro presenter up for us, the screens. But Hodges family is all big runner, and I admire them, and I'm excited for them. I know all of them. You know, Luke ran cross-country for a couple of years, and their coach was Scott Wateka, who has won, I don't know, 812 straight Music City marathons. That's a little bit over. I'm always fascinated by it. I'm fascinated by records. Like, I don't know if you heard about this, but on October 12th in 2019, a significant event happened in the history of humanity. This is a man who ran 26.2 miles. First of all, amazing, right? In under two hours. One hour, 59 minutes, 40 seconds. Just in case you're wondering, that's a four minute, 22 second pace for 26.2 miles. And all of God's people say, what? (laughs) What? Really? Four, 22 mile after mile. Now, here's the thing. They do not count it as an official world record. Here's the reason. They said he gamed the system. He he ran it on a specific plot that was at sea level and as flat as you could possibly do it. It was not an open event. The only one that was really racing was him. In fact, he had elite level pacers. You can see them behind him. They're cheering him on. And their job was to switch in and out throughout the race to keep the pace they needed to keep. And they ran in a specific V formation to stop wind resistance on him. He had a prototype Nike shoe that had not been released yet that is supposed to give you a minute better time on a marathon. They worked all the details out. They even had a guy riding beside him on a bicycle with a straw hung out where he did not have to veer just a few feet over to grab that water that comes in the middle of the race. They just hydrated him whenever he needed it. They made the event where he would have the best opportunity to do it. Now, you don't need to feel too bad for him. He does hold the official marathon world record. In Berlin, he ran a real marathon against real people in real conditions in two hours and one minute. So don't feel bad for him, right? If I tried to run a mile right now in four minutes and 22 seconds, I'd I'd have to leave the sermon to do it, and it would not go well at all. It's probably not the most famous kind of time banner that's been broken. Many of you may know the name of Roger Bannister. 
1954, May 6th, Roger Bannister ran after many, many attempts and on a day when he decided he wasn't going to run because of conditions and at the last minute decided to ran the first sub-four-minute mile. A mile in under four minutes. By the way, just so you're thinking about this, the guy that ran the marathon ran an average of 13 miles per hour. That's pretty fast, right? Roger Bannister would have run that around 18 miles per hour for a mile. Record that stayed around the same for a while, and in fact, not a lot of time, relatively speaking, has been shaved off of it. The world record today is 3 minutes and 43 seconds, and it's stayed since 1999. It's the longest the mile record has ever been the same. There's one other running event I want to talk about, one more historical one, and we're not sure of how long it took. We're not even sure of how far the race was. This was before stopwatches. In fact, it was 1,989 years ago. It occurred on Sunday, April 5th in the year 30 A.D. It was an early morning run. It was an unexpected run. We're not sure on the exact number of participants. We know there were two, and we know who came in first and who came in second in one of the most important races of all time. John chapter 20, starting in verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and she saw the stone had been removed from the tomb. Now, here's what happened when she saw that. Verse 2. So she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. I love these next two verses for a couple of reasons. We'll talk about them. We'll move on. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out heading for the tomb. How did they go out? How did they get ready for the, go to the tomb? It says in verse 4, the two were running together. They're racing. That's not what it says there, but have you ever seen two guys run and not race? It's a competitive spirit within us all. The two were running together, but the other disciple... Now, let me ask you a question. What book of the Bible is this? John. It identifies the other disciple as the one whom Jesus loved. Who is the one whom Jesus loved? John. So what's happening here? John's saying, guess who won the race? In Twitter terms, we call this humble brag, all right? I don't want to say who it was, but the other one beat Peter to the tomb. The other disciple went out heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. I want to talk about something real quick, and then we're going to move on in this. I mentioned I don't like to run. I've tried. Can't get it. Never got the runner's high. Never really enjoyed it. But there are some things in my life that would make me run even today. Right? What's something that could make you run? What was that? A house on fire. Sue went to worst possible scenario right away. Somebody said chocolate. House on fire, chocolate. It's the same. 
Uh, I may not have heard this, but I may have imagined it. Maybe it's the Spirit speaking. Someone said, spider in the shower. A couple of amens on that. Being chased by a wild animal, that could, that could do it, right? You know in that scenario, you don't have to be faster than the animal. You just be, have to be faster than the person running with you from the animal, right? Somebody's life's in danger. Parents, you know that feeling when you see your child wander at a parking lot, at a store, at a car, something, and you move. Now, granted, even today, my running would not be as quick. My reaction time would not be as it once was. I still attempt to play sports every now and then, and I run as little as possible in that time, but uh, there's something in your body that in that competitive environment, it just comes out and you start going. These guys were sitting in a room where they had been since Friday afternoon. We really don't know how long Peter had been there, but we know John had been there. The last that we know of John from this, past, from this book of the Bible and from what we know in Scripture and history, John was at the cross when Jesus died. He was there with him and... My assumption is that following that, he retired to this room where the other disciples had been and had just experienced quite possibly the longest and most difficult and saddest day of their lives. Their hope was gone. Their voice was gone. They had been with Jesus for three and a half years. They had left their families. They had left their friends. They had left their towns. They had left their responsibilities. They had left their chores and the understanding of the community of what they were supposed to do next. And what they had was the leader that they had followed and said, we will go with you literally to the ends of the earth. And that leader was now dead and buried and they had no idea what was next. For all they knew, other people were looking for them. They were holed up in this room, not because they didn't have other places to go or couldn't go back to their hometowns at this moment. They're holed up in there, scared to death because of what could have happened if they stepped out and somebody said, hey, that's one of his followers there. They were perfectly at rest in that room. By the way, I do think it's significant in a world in that time frame that would have put um, far more credence in the understanding of a man who was the witness to a resurrection. In that context, the Bible makes it clear that the first witnesses of the resurrection were female. Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb and she gets there. The stone that wasn't supposed to be able to be rolled away is rolled away. The guards are all struck from what we can tell from other accounts. They are, they are not in any way able to help. Something has gone on. It is obvious. And his body is not there because she thought, well, they just opened it for me so I can go in and prepare the body. The body is not there. And so when she sees that Jesus is not there, her only response is to do what? To run. And she runs back to the disciples. It tells us these two in particular, Peter and John, and says they've taken his body. By the way, I don't know if it's in your translation of the Bible, but in my translation of the Bible, there is an exclamation point at the end of that, which means you don't read that sentence in a monotone way. She did not come back and say, Hey guys, I think they've uh, removed the body, and we're not sure where he has gone. 
She comes back and like, they've done, they've done something with the body, guys. We don't know where they is. We've got to find the body. Where is it? And that news, in that moment, prompted them to run. They didn't take time to stretch. They didn't carve up before they went. They didn't throw on the best running gear. They ran. Sometimes there's news in life that causes us to run. I was doing some research on this passage this week, and I just, I don't know, I got, um, I'd seen a, another pastor talk about this running and, you know, joked about it, and I, I just got interested in the word run in the New Testament. Like, that's not a word I hear a lot. And in fact, I found out that in the gospel accounts, there are seven times that the word run is used. Something more than walk. It's, it's definitely like a full sprint. It's as hard as you can go. Because, you know, the Bible um, gives us different kind of scenarios. You thought, well, maybe it'll be in there more, but it's not. Seven times it's in the Gospels, run or some variant of it. And almost all of them, in fact, five of them, occur with, from Friday to Sunday of Holy Week. There's another exception that happens kind of in a strange place where a demon-possessed man runs at Jesus basically to say, get out of here. And then there's one that stands alone as the one that is running. Because it's not Mary Magdalene, and it's not Peter, and it's not John, and it's not a demon-possessed man. It's somebody in a story. We'll get to that in a minute. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, verse 5, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloth lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloth, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. It shows intention. It shows that this wasn't a haphazard, somebody took his body, that there was something intentional that happened here. In verse 8, the other disciple, John, by the way, John gets the, the jab in at Peter again. The other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, saw, and believed. Those of us that have been here for the last eight weeks now, We've been talking about this series called Signs, where the seven signs that Jesus performed. Those of you that have been here, help me out here. John tells us these signs, and what's his goal in telling the signs that Jesus performed? It was that they might, what? Believe. Here's what I love. is John gives us the very moment in his life when he did. This is John's testimony. I walked in, and he wasn't there, and I saw the folding, and Peter was dumbfounded, and I believed. Let's get back to that other instance in the New Testament, in the Gospels, when the word run is used. Because here's what I believe about that tomb that day, is that it was more than just an empty tomb. We know that. And that the resurrection of Jesus was something very specific to us that is captured in a verse in the book of Luke. You may know what Luke 15 is, what that chapter is. It's three parables. 
If you remember, the Pharisees said, Jesus just eats with the tax collectors and the sinners. He eats with all the people he's not supposed to eat with. He goes and dines with people that he should never dine with. And Jesus comes back and says, let me tell you three stories. And he tells three stories. There was the lost sheep, the lost coin, and if you're going with that wording, the lost son. And he tells this story. If you remember the sheep, there's 99 sheep that are in the fall, but there's one that's missing, and he goes after it, and he finds him, and he brings him back, and he talks about that. And then there's the missing coin, and she turns over the house, wrecks her house to find the coin. And then he starts what many people consider, many authors, many writers, the greatest short story in the history of the world. It is so well developed and written, and Jesus did it on the spot. And in the midst of that, you know the story, right? The prodigal son, he has two sons, and the younger son comes to him and says, Dad, I want my inheritance now. In that Jewish culture in that day, that was not just, hey, can I get some money? That is basically the son saying to the father, you are better off to me dead than alive. Go ahead and give me what I deserve when you die, and I'm going to take it and do what I want with it. And he leaves and he goes, they say, to a far country. Now, it's a parable. It's a story. This isn't a real thing. But in their mind, they would have understood every bit of what he was saying. And he would have gone and worked. Does anybody remember where he worked? What kind of farm did he work on? It's a pig farm. Now, that was significant. It's a significant detail because it meant that this Jewish boy from a good Jewish family had told his dad, you're better off dead to me. And he went to the far country. And when he went to the far country, he didn't work for a Jewish farmer. He didn't work for somebody that believed the way he did because Jewish farmers could not touch, handle, or be around pigs. It meant that it was a Gentile he was working for. He had not only abandoned his dad, he had not only abandoned his family, he had abandoned his faith. You know the story, right? He squanders his wealth. He doesn't have anywhere to go. He's wanting to eat the pig's food and says in Scripture, one of my favorite phrases, he comes to his senses and he decides to go back. And he rehearses a speech. And he starts on his way back. And then we get to Luke chapter 15, verse 20. But while the son was still a long way off, His father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. Now we're not going to read the whole story. Most of you know it. He puts some family adornments on him. He says, he's been restored to me. My son that was dead is now alive. He kills the fattened calf. They throw a party. The older brother gets mad about it. But the dad rejoices that his son is home. Let me ask you a question. This is not a deep theological or extremely hard biblical interpretation question. In the story of the lost son, who does... The Father represent. It's God. It's important for us to understand that because what's happening in this dynamic is something that would have absolutely shocked the people of that day. For a couple of reasons. First of all, I don't know how you've ever imagined this, but for some reason, when I read this story, when I thought about this story, 
in my typical way that I insert my Western mindset into everything, I think of the father sitting on a big front porch waiting at the end of a lane and the son shows up at the gate at the end of the porch and he sees him and starts to run. Just, just for me. Anybody else kind of seen it that way? Okay, four of us. That's awesome. Right. No, but you know what I mean. Like, that's how you see it. Like, he's down there and he's going. But we have to realize that's not how they lived in that day. They didn't live in a house with a porch set off. They lived in community, in a village. And one of the things that you have to understand in that day is that there are a couple of points in this passage that we see that don't really trigger anything for us because we kind of have that idea, of course the dad saw him. Of course he was filled with compassion. We've all seen the videos of, of for instance, one of my favorite things to see on, online when I see them are the, the soldiers returning from war videos and the dad sees and the, and the son sees and the daughter sees or the wife sees and they run towards each other. Like That's what happens. But in that day and time, a couple of things are distinct about this particular story. One is that in their day and time, men... Men never ran unless their life was in danger. I kind of like that. Because in order to run, you had to take your long tunic, you had to tuck it into your belt so that you were exposing your shins. See, if you were a, an audience of Jesus Day, you would have gone, oh! let's, let's try that again. I want to hear you do that, all right? You would have exposed your shins. Wow, that's good. You are good. All right. And on this particular day, it appears that he ran wildly, so he would not have only exposed his shins. He would have exposed from the knee down. Good. Some of you got it. All right. But this dad in this story says, I don't care. I don't care what people think about me. I don't care what the community believes. I don't care what standards they think I am breaking. My son is on his way home and I am going to get him. I am acting in that way. There's one detail that we don't get at all because it's not our society at all. When a son did what this son did in this story, not only would he have been cut off, that's the literal phrase they would have used in Hebrew, from the family, the entire community would have cut him off. And to get back to his family, he would have to go through a community tribunal, for lack of a better term, to get back to the family. This is what they would do when someone married a woman that was not from their clan or from their tribe or from their religion. People got really upset about that. And they would bring out dried um, nuts and dried corn, I don't know why, and put it in a pot and they would smash the pot at the feet of the offender and they would say, you have been cut off and are no longer welcome in this place. And they would send them home. If they wanted to come back, they had to go through an entire ceremony of cleansing and ritual and pay back the debt they owed to the community before they could ever go to their dad. So when this prodigal son is left and he's starting to come back in the story, the father sees him, hears that he's coming, and basically says, I'm not going to let the community and its ritual get in the way of the restoration of my son. He wasn't going to wait 
for them to go through all of that. And you say, what does that all have to do with Easter? The empty tomb is God running to you. These guys were running into a tomb that God had already prepared. Can I tell you something? One of the interesting things about that story of the prodigal son is he says, go get the fattened calf. I, don't, I didn't grow up on a ranch or a farm. Some of you may have. But here's what I've read and know from their tradition. They didn't fatten calves all the time. They fattened calves for specific moments. And what he was basically saying was, go get the calf that we have been feeding and getting ready for this exact time. You see, the father knew the son would come at some point. He was just watching for him. And what happens at the empty tomb is when John and Peter get there, what they actually see is that God has been preparing this moment for them since the foundation of the world and that God is always the first mover in setting us right. The empty tune is the fulfillment of John 3.16 where God is the initiator for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved you, for God so loved me, for God so loved us, for God so loved the world that He gave, He ran, He sent His Son for us. So that anyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal, everlasting life. You One of my favorite details, you, you take these resurrection stories from all four Gospels and you put them together and you got to put a timeline together and try to figure that out. It's from different perspectives and John's and Peter's and Matthew's and, and you've got these different perspectives that are going on. Luke and his research... One of my favorite moments comes in the book of Mark. This is John's gospel we've been reading, written by the Apostle John, so he gets John's point of view. That's why he keeps saying, I beat Peter to the tomb. But you also get this moment in Mark's gospel, which, by the way, Mark's gospel, most people think, is written from first-hand accounts of Peter. And when you get to the tomb and you get to that moment, this is one of my favorite things in all of Scripture. So even if you've checked out already, all right, listen to me. If your sugar crash is ended, you're here, all right? When they get ready and the tomb is not there and there, and they say, go tell the others that Jesus is alive, right? The angels say, go tell others that Jesus is alive. He is not here. What I love about the detail that happens in Mark chapter 16, verse 20, is that it says in that passage, go tell others and Peter. Peter is singled out. You know why Peter is singled out? What did Peter do two days beforehand? He denied Jesus. I don't even know him. Says he cursed and got mad. And so in that moment, the angels are saying, the extent of God's grace is unbounded, and the open tomb is an invitation and a declaration that God has come for you. And I don't know who you are, where you've been in this room. I don't know the secrets of your soul or your life. I don't know what happens when you're in the dark or when you're alone. I don't know what you may have thought or done or been or said in your life. But here's what I know for sure is that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what your past is, the empty tomb is an invitation for you to come in and believe. 
And some of you in this room, that means for the very first time in your life, you need to put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You need to say, I need to be saved. I have made a mess of my life. I have destroyed it by the choices that I have made. And listen, every one of us in this room is the prodigal son that ran away. We are the ones that said to God, thanks God for all you've given me, but I'll take it from here. We've made poor choices. We've sinned. We've messed up. Maybe you're here today and you've never accepted the free gift of forgiveness that comes through Jesus. There is no better day than Easter Sunday morning to say, Jesus, I am ready. Save me. Today can be that day. For some in this room, it means you need to take the next step. You accepted Jesus. Maybe you accepted Jesus a long time ago. Maybe you accepted him two weeks ago. And for some of you, that next step is to follow. In Scripture, as it tells us, the, the first thing that we ought to do as an act of obedience is to announce to the world that we have been saved, that Jesus is our King. We do that through public baptism. We're going to have a baptism service next Sunday morning. In fact, I highly encourage you to come back next Sunday. It's going to be a celebration. It's going to be awesome. We've got several to baptize next Sunday. We're going to have a good time with that. And for some of you, you need to come and say, hey, I'm ready to do that and I want to be a part of next week. we got room. We'll fill that bathroom as full as we need to and stay as long as we have to. Amen? For some of you, the next step is to take a step of obedience and releasing some things that have been weighing you down. On Friday night, I, had a, I went to an awesome event. Um, Chris Tomlin started a tradition a few years ago called Good Friday Nashville. It's at Bridgestone Arena. I, did, I didn't know everything about the event. I just knew Chris Tomlin was leading worship, and he always had surprise guests, and Max Lucado was speaking, and so we went. It turns out that 100% of the proceeds from the night go to help foster kids in the state of Tennessee. I had some awesome testimonies about that. Hillsong United, anybody knows them, showed up as a surprise and led worship for part of the night with Chris Tomlin. It was an awesome night. Max Lucado told this story at the beginning of his message that was really funny. He has two grandchildren, and his grandchild's son is named Max. And one day, while they were all at his house, his granddaughter came running up to him and said, Granddaddy, we got to go. Max can't get up. And he said, What's the problem? Why can't Max get up? And she said, His pants are full of rocks, and they fall into the ground. And they've tripped him up, and he can't stand. And so as Max told it, he got there and he was sitting on the ground and the only thing between him and the earth was a pair of Spider-Man underoos. <laughs> and he said, Buddy, I think we're going to have to take some rocks out for you to be able to stand up. And then Max just asked this question, What are the rocks that are weighing you down? Maybe today your next step of faith is to say, Lord, I'm ready to get rid of some of the rocks. And maybe sin... That may be good stuff. I always find it interesting in Hebrews chapter 12, and it's telling us about running, that word again, this race that God has set before us. It says that we need to get rid of anything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us. The two words are separate words. It means anything at all, good or bad, that could be hindering you. Oh, and make sure the sin's part of that. So maybe for you, your next step is to get rid of all the stuff that you need to get rid of. And for some of you in this room, that next step of faith is it's time to commit 
to do what you know God's calling you to do, that you've been reluctant. Maybe for you it's not learning how to play the guitar or learning to run, but that God's called you to do something, and you're like, man, I wish I could do that, but there's just too many things in my life, and God's saying, no, there's not. That word believe that John says means more than just I accept Jesus as my Savior. It means I am committing my entire life to live what God has called me to do. And so I just have one simple question for you today as we end. Do you believe? Julio, the band are going to go back. They're going to play a song that talks about the living hope we have in Jesus Christ. I'm going to be standing down front. No one's going to be standing down front. I'd love to have a conversation with you. If you think there's something in your life that you need to give to the Lord, if you need to accept Jesus for the first time, if you're ready to be baptized, you say, let's do that next week. If you know there's something that needs to go forward, if you just need to come and pray, this altar will be open. It's an altar unto the Lord, not because there's anything special about the wood or anything here, but anytime you find a place where you meet with the Lord, it becomes an altar with Him. Maybe you just need to come to meet with the Lord this morning. I'm going to pray, and when I finish praying... We're going to stand and we're going to sing. And if you need to respond, I'm going to ask you to respond. I'm going to tell you, at the end of my prayer today, I'm going to say a prayer specifically for those of you in this room that may do accept Jesus Christ for the first time. And I, I, I'm not going to say it and wait for you. I'm just going to kind of go into it. I'm going to tell you that if you need to do that, if you need to accept Jesus as your Savior, then this is the opportunity to do it. And the words, they matter, but they don't matter near as much as what your heart really believes. And so if you get the words messed up, that's not what matters. The question is, are you ready to accept Jesus and to follow him? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this moment that we get to celebrate the resurrection. Lord, how magnificent it is to think about that glorious first morning of Peter, John running to the tomb and finding it empty and John believing Lord, I pray if there are those in this room today that have never made that first step of believing, of being saved, that today would be the day. Lord, I pray if there are those that need to make other decisions, Lord, that you would just make that evident to them. Lord, I pray that if there are those that are here that say, it's now, it's time, I'm ready to be saved. Lord, first of all, that you would just allow them to understand your love. Lord, that they would just kind of in their own heart repeat these words after me. Heavenly Father, we know that you love us. Lord, I know that I have made decisions that aren't what you would want them to be. Lord, that I have sinned, that I'll fall short of your glory. Lord, I believe that Jesus died for my sins on the cross and that three days later He rose again from the grave. And today, Lord, I ask You to save me, to take away my sin and to secure my eternity with You. I pray this in Jesus' name.